Welcome to the Audiobook Speakeasy. I'm Rich Miller, and I'm your host here at the Speakeasy. This is where you'll meet narrators, coaches, engineers, and other audiobook professionals, as well as some listeners who will be sharing what they look for in a good audiobook. If you're interested in audiobook production, you've come to the right place. So come on in, grab a drink, pull up a chair, and join us for a friendly chat about audiobooks. My guest tonight is an audiobook narrator who has narrated several hundred audiobooks, been nominated for several Audis, and won several Audiophile Earphones Awards. She's also an accomplished stage actor, director, and narration coach. Marguerite Gavin, thanks for joining me in the speakeasy tonight. Hi, nice to be here. I am so glad you could make it in. I know that you are incredibly busy with all of the different uh, acting things that you do, so thank you for coming in. Yeah, absolutely. It's nice to make time for it. Take a little break from the studio. There you go. And wh- how better to take a break than to have a drink? So uh, what are you <laughs> drinking tonight? A friend of mine made me a dirty martini. Uh, he actually calls it a filthy martini because I like, you know, it's almost more olive juice than it is alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I, it's like a salt lick drink. I, I've got a friend who likes martinis that dirty. I, I yeah. uh, was going up to the bar to buy the next round at some point and he said, uh, yeah, Dirty Martina. I said, oh, Dirty, okay. And he said, yeah, the dirtier, the better. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And this friend of mine, is a he's a mix master. So he's always trying to get, you know, ex- and he's like, it's no longer Dirty, sweetheart. It's filthy. It's a filthy <laughs> martini. So. That's great. I'll have to remember <laughs> Lots that Lots of one. olives. <laughs> that's good. That's good. I always do use a lot of olives. I just don't really go for the olive juice so much, which is a little surprising since I'm a big salt fanatic. So. So, um, I'm yeah. not, I'm not sure why I've never gotten into the dirty martini. I know that one time I was served a dirty martini by mistake. Um, I just ordered a martini and apparently the bartender thought it would be a good idea to make it dirty. And so he did, and it was pretty damn dirty and, um, I, I couldn't finish it. Um, well, maybe you're just not a guy that likes salty drinks. Could be, could and be. Maybe- comes down to that. <laughs> yeah, the, the olives are enough for me. So, well, that sounds good. I am a martini fan. So, uh, so the audiobook speakeasy certainly approves of anyone having a martini. <laughs> I am, uh, I am joining you in a prohibition era cocktail. It's called the last word. And I just found it recently. It's uh, equal parts gin, maraschino liqueur, uh, green chartreuse and lime juice. Wow, that must be very pretty. It is. It's a very nice green, and um, <laughs> and it's also it's also very herbal because green chartreuse has something like I don't know 140 different herbs that are all gathered by monks up in the mountains. And is that the- lots of juniper in it or am I wrong about that? I believe that it does have juniper, but it doesn't have a ton of juniper. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's got a ton of a whole bunch of different things. So it's really difficult to pick out one thing. Usually when I, when I make a drink for my wife with green chartreuse, she'll say, and I don't tell her what it is or what's in it. She'll say, Oh, does this have absinthe? So you can, uh-huh. you can, you can taste some of the, um, the, uh, now I'm blanking on the absinthe the herb, flavor. Right. Yeah. They, um, uh, the black licorice kind of flavor. Uh, yeah. So you that's, can. That's you, usually fennel. 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 Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Licorice. So um, so it does. It definitely does have some of that. And you can kind of taste that. And you can taste one or two other things. But it's uh, it's a whole bunch of different things. So it's it usually makes a very complex tasting drink. And this is no exception. Um, and I just found a, a kind of a riff on the last word that was invented, I don't know, 10 or 20 years ago by some bartender whose last name was Ward. 
And so instead of uh, the last word, he named his drink the final ward. And uh, he, he subbed oh. out lemon for lime and rye whiskey for the gin. And so I, I tried one of those as well. And, and I thought it was very different. It was very interesting. But anyway, this, yeah. is, this is the last word. And uh, being a big gin fan, I'm, uh, I'm a fan of the last word. So thank, yeah. you, thank you so much for coming in tonight. I, uh, I hope that the dirty martini turns out to be as dirty as you were hoping for. cheers it's so funny because cheers to you it's so funny because i just as i said i just played mrs robinson and i really really wanted her to have a martini because she's just got a drink and a cigarette the whole way through Mm -hmm. and you know i really wanted her to have a martini but i was in these killer heels and i had to also be drunk and i thought i can barely walk around sober with a martini flat (laughs) And you have to have the martini glass, of course. Sure. And yeah. so I ended up just going with bourbon on the rocks. And that that was a little more stable than the martini. But in my mind, I was like, oh, you know, this is a lady that definitely drinks martinis. <laughs> <laughs> and lots of them for sure. That's great. Where was uh well, let's come back to uh, Mrs. Robinson in in a minute. Where are you from sure. originally? I know that you're on the East Coast now. Where are you from originally? I am basically from the Maryland area. Um, oh, so you're not all that far from uh, where you grew up. N- no, I, I've never gotten too far away from family. Um, and I've been very, very lucky. I was an actress in the D.C. Baltimore area for many, many years. And uh, the great thing about that market is that you can really diversify in a way that it's difficult to diversify in New York or L.A. So I was able to do... Um, theater and audiobook narration and voiceovers and voicing documentaries and some commercial modeling in my 20s and, you know, industrials and small films and things. Um, so, you know, I was able, I've been so fortunate to make a living as an actor. Um, and actually this particular market, the DC Baltimore and, you know, every once in a while, Philly and New York, but mostly there's such a huge theater scene and so much happening in that area that uh yeah i've never felt the burning desire to go to new york and you know be hungry <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and i have a family you know i had my son when i was 22 so both of my kids are green room kids they're used to the theater they used they were on everybody's hip on shakespeare tours and that's great um, green room green room kids i've never heard that phrase that's funny yeah it's a real thing you know because there just aren't that many people in the theater that have families um and uh so when i was in graduate school i went to graduate school at catholic university and i went to school when my son was nine months old and so he was just passed around through the theater department. He <laughs> <laughs> really was. And good people. I trusted them. And then my daughter, I was invited to go back and teach at Catholic, uh, you know, eight years later. And uh, I taught on the acting faculty for the graduate students and the undergrad students. And um, I, my daughter was four months old when I went to work. And I just couldn't bear to leave her at home. So I'd pass her to an undergraduate, teach my class. You know, <laughs> That's great. Um, nurse her, go back and teach class. So <laughs> yeah, they're, they're definitely, definitely were raised in, in, in the, uh, in the performing arts industry for sure. So definitely a lot of theater. So, um, and is that what you studied when you were at school? Yes. Okay. And yeah. then, and then you went back to teach and you were teaching theater. 
Yes. Yeah. I taught uh, acting and movement and voice for actors. Voice for actors. Really? That's interesting. So at that point, had you already gotten into any kind of voiceover work? Yeah, I'm trying to remember. I was trying to remember because I knew I was going to be talking to you. I think that I started doing audiobooks in about 1997. Oh, quite a while ago. Uh, yeah, 1997, 98. Mm -hmm. um, and it, you know, really has supported my theater career in so many ways because it's difficult to make a living in the theater with a family. Sure, yeah. Um, but, um, you know, gradually it's sort of the, you know, has become the, the sort of center, the, the, the one thing that is the constant mm -hmm. is the audiobook and voiceover work. And then, um, you know, it, it allows me the flexibility to bounce out and do other creative projects that I might be interested in that I don't have to attach a lot of money to, um, you know, that I don't have to worry too much about that creative endeavor supporting me and my family. Um, the audiobooks have been a creative endeavor that has allowed that. And and it's been a wonderful thing because I've been able to, you know, meet my kids off the school bus and, you know, be flexible enough if there were issues that I needed to deal with with them. Working from home is, well, that's great. And it has its challenges, as I'm sure you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I want to go back to the uh, the voice for actors. So by the time you had started, it sounds like by the time you had started teaching that, you had already started doing audiobooks. Um, yeah. And were you, was there any other voiceover work, or did you go straight into audiobooks as sort of an adjunct to the theater work that you were doing? Well, I was very, very fortunate uh, in, in just in getting into audiobooks. And you know how competitive the industry is now. Um, DC was a, a real hotbed of narrators. Uh, so many people had come out of the Library of Congress and their Books for the Blind program. Mm -hmm. So we had many, many actors, well, many, many, but a good number of actors that uh, were working in the theater in DC. One of them was Grover Gardner. Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Jenny Mendenhall, who reads as as Kate as Kate Redding, uh, or reading, I never know which one it is. And Michael Kramer were there. Just a lot of Chris Lane was there. Lots of narrators. And I was working in the theater. I think I was doing a play with Grover. And uh, Sean Pratt was was just starting to try to learn about audiobooks, and mm -hmm. he and I were married. And um, Grover just kept after me about making, um, you know, making a demo. And I thought I can never do it. I'm a people person. I like the dynamic, the interaction of people. And I thought this is just not a good fit for me. And he said, of course, I had I had kids by then or I, I think I was I don't think I'd had Olivia. I have a I have a 28 year old son and an and 18 year old daughter. Mm -hmm. So it was a little before Olivia was born. But he kept saying, "Hey, you're you're gonna need this." Um, and so I was already doing some voiceover work. I was doing some voiceover work for the Discovery Channel and for, you know, regional commercials, that sort of thing. Some documentary work, and uh, so I made a demo, and Grover was kind enough to shop it around for me. And I got my first clients, and I was off. So that's great. So you had done some other voiceover work, um, but then it sounds like pretty quickly you you got into the audiobook thing, and and so yeah. and so how did that um, factor into uh, any kind of a course curriculum that you had for voice for actors? For uh, I'm sorry, was it voice for theater? 
Well, it was yeah. The, those those actors were primarily interested in theater. I think they actually did get a, a voiceover workshop or an audio book workshop with Grover, or with Jennifer Mendenhall or Michael. Some you know they they got that piece. My work with them was more about um, assimilating the uh, your you know vocal range and and the, the realm of possibility for your voice. And assimilating the voice and the psychological reality and the physical reality, um, sort of finding finding a way to allow the voice to connect you with the emotional reality of your character. And That's, that sounds very cool. That sounds like something that would be very useful for um, kind of voiceover of all kinds and especially audiobooks. Yeah, I think so. I think that we tend to, especially if as I said, I was, you know, very silent in here without any jingling or anything. Um, there's a stillness that is required with audiobooks. There's a, you have to sit or stand. I like to stand. Sometimes I like to stand. Sometimes I like to sit. It just depends on the day. Mm -hmm. Um, but there is a little bit of a disconnect, I think, that can happen when you're just using your voice. Yeah, so, absolutely. That's what, exactly yeah. what I was thinking was a lot of times people are thinking, well, it's the thing you do with your voice. Well, not entirely. <laughs> no, and the and the students that I that I have the privilege of working with right now, um, that's a lot of what we're working on is allowing the voice to, um, you know, allowing the voice, allowing what's happening with the words and the emotional reality of the scene, to actually have a, a deeper meaning for you to go a little deeper. Um, we work on breathing a lot, just breathing. Um, and you know that's one of the big challenges of being a, 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 a an audiobook narrator in particular is yeah, absolutely. raising your breath, but then also being able to, you know, do that work outside of the theater, uh, outside of the outside of the studio theater too. But it's almost as if you're singing your scales, and then you get in and you just sing the song. So that's sort of one of the my approaches when I'm working with students is to see if I can get them synced up with their voices, their emotional reality, their psychology, and 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 physicality. Even though you're in a state of real stillness, mm -hmm. you know. So, yeah, there's a good bit of crossover. It's it's quite different. I know that uh, I just did a reading last night and. Um, my voice, and then I was in the studio for four hours today. So my voice is a little fatigued, and it doesn't usually get fatigued if I'm only working in the theater or if I'm only on the microphone doing audiobooks. Well, that's interesting. There's something about that transition that it just is a strange thing with the voice. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I, I, I was working also with them on diction. Mm -hmm. um, students in graduate school. And so, you know, a lot of what I do with my uh, acting, I mean, I consider myself a, an acting coach for narrators, which I think is a little different than uh, what a lot of people are doing. I'm really approaching the work from a Okay, what do you do in terms of character study? What do you know about these characters? What research have you done? Have you done? Have you answered these particular questions? Um, you know, do you know the events of the book? What's the moment before that character starts talking? So I, I really talk about audiobook narration from a from a perspective of of acting. Mm -hmm. I think it's 
great if an audiobook narrator is already an actor. But there are a number of my students that come from a radio background or they just don't have that that acting foundation. And so that's that's what I'm trying to share with them. Mm-hmm. And even just to give them a process, um, because the process is, uh, it can be a little obtuse. You know, you get great books and then you get difficult books, challenging books. Um, and if you have a process in place with fiction for the acting of that book, it can it can elevate a book that otherwise is maybe not quite as fantastic as the last one that you did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I understand. Um, a, lot of, <laughs> a lot of variation in the texts that you end up getting. Yes, there <laughs> is. But yeah, it can get a little formulaic. You know, you get into series that are extremely formulaic. Mm-hmm. And, but um, I appreciate that. I appreciate the challenge of trying to make a book better. Mm-hmm. Every book that I work on, I think, well, how can I find this author's voice and and really see if I can find the the heart of the book um, and bring whatever truth I can to it. And hopefully that makes it a book that is worth listening to. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that sounds great. Um, so before focusing more on the audiobooks, it's you you mentioned that you had just played Mrs. Robinson on stage. So you are still working in the theater in addition to doing all the audiobook work that you do. Oh yeah, absolutely. I I've I haven't I don't think I've ever stopped working in the theater except to have my kids. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, that, that would be difficult. Pretty brief. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know with my son I was doing a, a a musical and I was pregnant with him and I was so worried because I was I was sort of falling out of my costume. <laughs> and and, I, and the show ended on the day that I became 4 months pregnant with him. So, and Olivia, I think I worked until I was about three or four months pregnant and then went back to work, you know, within nine months or so of, of having them. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the only real breaks that I've taken. I was ill last year, so I had to take a little chunk of time off. Um, but, um, yeah, it's, uh, I, the theater is a little like church for me, I guess. There's something that feels, it feels like home the 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 process that is there, the ritual that's involved with the theater is something that is is really valuable to me. I, I'm grateful to have been able to to sustain a the, a, a career in the theater. Um, and the audiobooks, of course, have just made that possible. yeah, i I totally hear you on the theater. There have been a couple of times when i've I've gone into the theater either. Uh, early or at a time when a rehearsal wasn't happening for something else. And sometimes if you just, if the lights are on on the stage, um, sometimes I can just sit in the house and um, it's just very, uh, you can get kind of meditative sitting there. It's like, what a, what a space this is. Yes, you know, it's, ama- uh, it's amazing the things that can happen in this space, how, how diverse those things are and how they can affect so many different people in so many different ways. Right. And the stories that you get to tell. I mean, one of the reasons that I love being an actress is that I love repeating stories. I love the Greeks. I love Shakespeare. I love the classics because I feel like, oh, I'm just part of a a long line of actors that are telling this story mm-hmm. over and over again. And there's value in it that we, we, you know, we relate to it. There's something about Hamlet that we need to keep telling that particular story and his particular journey. Yeah. So. 
Yeah. And of course, and, and, and it doesn't matter. It could be an absolutely glorious theater or it could be a little black box mm-hmm. and the same sort of feeling of uh, that meditative quality, that, that, that feeling of centeredness. Um, you can't do your work as an actor if you can't find sort of a baseline centered place. And uh, sometimes just walking into the theater automatically makes me feel that way. Yeah, no. I feel the same way walking into my studio too. As long as well, I've got this glorious new studio that my father built. Um, nice. Yeah, it's really, really nice. It comes apart in pieces, and uh, so if I want to move, I can take it with me. But it's really the best studio I've ever worked in, and um, you know, made with love by my seventy-two-year-old carpenter dad. Wow. Yeah, that that is <laughs> <Yeah>. definitely special. <laughs> yeah. It it really, truly is. It was just a a, a, a joy for that, that he stepped in and said, hey, I'm going to do this for you. That's fantastic. Um, but I do have the same feeling when I walk into the studio because there's a quiet here. There's, a, there's not much going on visually. It's just a concentrated moment in front of the microphone with your text. And so there's something kind of calming about it. Yeah, that sounds great. Um I, I built my studio a year ago, and uh, I know of another narrator who recently, who whose father recently built her a studio, and I just think that is so cool. I've, knowing the amount of work that I went through to build this, thinking right. that you know you've you've got uh, somebody who's this family member who believes in you, and and that's awesome. I I certainly don't mean to say anything negative about my family. There's no way that anybody in my family could have done this. So, um, <laughs> but but that's that's very cool that that you had that he had that opportunity to help you, and uh, that, yeah, and that you could he really took it. And he's a great carpenter. I mean, he builds boats and musical instruments. So this was wow. pretty for him but it is i mean my father never builds anything without it being sort of it's going to last through the ages right right. and so this this studio is is hardier than any other studio i've ever been in it's very very quiet and um and i was in a studio that was a little just wasn't working out well it was in the house and i i could hear the dog and cat walking down the hall and Mm -hmm. i just hadn't in many years hadn't worked in, in a studio that was quite that much, that was so live with external noises. So this is, this is actually very, very quiet. Well, that's great. Makes the work easier to do, get it done. So something else that you do in theater is directing. And, um, how did you get into that and how is that affecting your audiobook work? If at all, I think it's really affecting my audiobook work. Um, I started uh, directing. I I love working with children, and so for about ten years, I had a a theater company for children, ages eight to thirteen, and worked with a composer and playwright who did original material for them, and it was just wonderful. So that's where I started directing was working with children, and then for another five years, I was at Maryland Shakespeare Festival. And I had a group of teenagers, middle schoolers and teenagers, and we did two Shakespeare shows a year. They were called the Riotous Youth from uh, Midsummer Night's Dream. They call the lovers <laughs> the Riotous Youth. And so, um, you know, I, I, I really think I cut my teeth on directing children and teenagers. And then I just started to seek out opportunities to direct uh, adult professionals. And um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been an actress since I was 17 years old and making a living at it since I was 19 or 18. And 
I, you know, they're just like, just like uh, actors and actresses want in Hollywood want to get behind the camera. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you want a little more control over the story. I'm sort of, I'm an actress that's looking at the whole story. And I started to go, wait a minute, you're looking at the whole story. You might as well just direct the whole story. Mm-hmm. And what I love about it is that, um, I mean, I'm an actor, so I'm an actor's director. Mm, yeah. I'm really, really interested in the dialogue. I'm, I'm so interested. I always feel like an actor that I'm directing is is absolutely going to have a better idea than I do. And so my goal is just to get those ideas live and sort of facilitate their success while I've got an eye, an eye on the whole story. The way that's, that that is, that's great. Yeah, it's I mean, it's been I've been really, really lucky to have the opportunities that I've had. Um, the way it's affected my audiobooks is um, that I have an I have a better eye on the whole story. I have a better eye for the author or a better ear for the author's um, for the author's voice. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so I th- I do think it's I, I think I'm probably a better director of myself than I used to be um, just, you know, when I, before I started directing plays. Also uh, coaching uh, people in, in acting for the, basically acting for the microphone. Um, that has really informed my work too, because it forces you to sort of distill your ideas, to say them out loud. And often the things that I'm asking actors to try or do or explore are things that I'm absolutely not doing. Yeah, I've forgotten about them. You know, mm-hmm. I'm in the studio for four hours every day. I've got a constant thread, you know, constant flow of books. And so, you know, it can, the, the, the goal is to keep it lively and keep it creative and not make it sort of your day job mm-hmm. to remember that you've got this opportunity for creativity. So, I think I'm I'm learning as much as my coaching students uh, in this endeavor that I'm exploring right now. Well, that's great, win-win. I have to imagine <laughs> that if if you can succeed as a director when dealing with middle schoolers and high schoolers, you can <laughs> succeed as a director with anybody. <laughs> yeah, middle schoolers and high schoolers doing Shakespeare yeah. is really. You know, although Shakespeare is wonderful for that age group because they have they have these big ideas and big feelings and have a difficult time expressing them. Certainly they're having a more difficult time because you have to express them in, you know, on Twitter or in text. Mm -hmm. So language starts to dissipate. And Shakespeare for that particular age group where they've got these huge things that they need to say and don't know how to say them. Shakespeare gives them that opportunity once they know what they're saying. They just are, they're glorious. So I, I, I really do love working with uh, teenagers doing Shakespeare. I like working with anybody doing Shakespeare, but yeah. uh, So you have your, you have your new studio. Uh, do you, do you often go into other studios to record audiobooks or do you just record at home? No, you know, I, I always make the offer that I am happy. I, I do a lot of work for Audible and it would be very easy. It's an easy jaunt up to New York. Um, I'd be very happy to go up and work in their studios. But, you know, the I guess the standard of my sound is, is fine. Mm-hmm. I very rarely work with a director. Um, so I think I did a book, one book last year out of, oh gosh, 75. 
um, that uh, was, I worked on Skype with a director. Um, so that's actually something I feel like I, I could learn about. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, you know, it's been a, it's been a pretty isolated experience and you know how that works where mm-hmm. it's, they're wearing all the hats yep. and, um, I'm lucky in that I'm not mastering my own stuff because I'm a Luddite. I, I'm terrible with it. <laughs> so I'm like, I can do this little piece. Now you fix it. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty rare every once in a while I'll go off and do something, but usually it's not an audio book. It's usually a voiceover or a documentary or something like that, where I'm in somebody else's studio and they're directing me. Got it. All right. Well, that's great that you have that new studio that your dad built then. Yeah. Well, we've had a lot of studios over the year. We, Sean and I moved around a lot. So, um, this one, uh, it just feels like a, a Ferrari. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's, that's, that's great. Um, so are there any, you, you've narrated, I think it's around 400 books now. Is that right? Well, I think it's about 400 on audible. It's probably five or 600 that I've narrated. Oh, because going back you were, it was like Congress type stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, educational books and, and things that just never quite made the leap onto the audible, uh, elephant, you know? Yeah. Um, are are there any, most of them have, but. Are there any uh, types of books or are there any genres that you don't narrate or would not be willing to narrate? Well, I have um, I have pretty uh, strong boundaries or I don't want to say limits, just boundaries about what I will do with romance and erotica. Mm-hmm. So those I'm I'm careful about what material I choose there. Um but I have been really so fortunate. I, I I was trying to think today if there wasn't a genre that I've narrated. And I really couldn't think of anything. Hmm. Um, you know, maybe sort of like, uh, I don't, well, even, even when there's like a video game kind of a, you know, when it's that kind of a strange genre. Mm, lit um, RPG, yeah. I, yeah, I've done a lot of voicing of video games, so I haven't quite done that particular audiobook thing, but I do lots of fantasy, thrillers, mystery, I do cozy mysteries, I do romance, I do lots of nonfiction. Well, my guess is that if you have done video game voiceover, um, you will probably at some point do lit RPG in terms of audiobooks because that is one of the, I think, one of the hottest genres in terms of growth these days. Well, that's good. New information for me. I guess I'll get busy on my marketing tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> my my understanding is that it is uh, really taking off. So uh, I'm not positive about that, but I, I think that's the case. I know several people who have done quite a bit lately, and it just seems like there's more coming. So. Well, that's good. Cool. I, one of the video games that uh, I worked on, I feel like it was Counter-Strike or Call of Duty. I can't remember which one it was, but uh, all I had to do was go in and scream for the afternoon. Mm-hmm. I've got a good scream. And so it's just, okay, scream this way, scream this way. This is your emotional reality under this screen. It was pretty funny. So that is one yeah. of the, that is one of the reasons that I have really not tried to go in that direction. Of course, if my agent comes and says, oh, I've got this video game and they want to hire you specifically, I'd be like, great, I'm all over it. But I haven't really gone out and tried to do that because I know that that video game voiceover is really taxing. And yeah. and yeah. based on some of the stories that I've heard, I'm thinking, 
knowing my own voice, knowing my own physical limitations, uh, I'm thinking if I did one of those Call of Duty type things where I'm <laughs> yelling the entire four-hour session, I'm toast for days. Right. So, so I really right. haven't sought it out. Um, but, um, but that's great. Since you've done that, it really seems to me that at some point soon you will probably do a lit yeah. RPG. <laughs> I, I'm going to explore it tomorrow. I didn't know it was. I have a I have a student that is. Um, he's actually a theater actor. He's from my alma mater. He went to Catholic. Oh. And uh, he's really an interesting interesting talent. He is all about all of those voices in video games. Mm. And you know his sort of thing is is really fast paced sci fi and video games and uh, you know all of that stuff. And what I'm trying to do with him is just get him to calm down, right. you know, just be intimate with the story. Um, but he's super talented and he's always playing stuff for me of these these voiceover actors. And I have tremendous respect for the voiceover actors that are doing cartoons and video oh, yeah. games. And, you know, they just have a different uh, a different flexibility in their voices that I, I truly admire. Yeah, no, so do I. Definitely. So um, you mentioned that you were ill last year. So um, I heard about that story. What what happened there? Um, I uh, I had a, a condition that's pretty rare. It's called trigeminal neuralgia, where the um, nerve, the facial nerve, is. Uh, in my case, it was uh, there was a blood vessel wrapped around it. So it's considered. You know the painting, the scream. Mm -hmm. You know. Oh that? yeah. So that guy had the condition that I had. And, oh, uh, wow. Yeah, it's terrible. That was his depiction of the pain experience. It's considered the most painful disease that you can have. And um, it uh, runs my family. So I had gone through many, many different you know, ways of dealing with this and finally decided to have the brain surgery where they could... Um, separate that nerve out from whatever was impeding it and causing all of this pain. Um, so that's what I did. Wow, uh, that sounds major. It was major. I had no idea quite how major it would be. I, I didn't quite understand the amount of recovery that was going to be involved. Um, what was very cool about it, though, was that the audiobook community and the theater community really came to my rescue. They were super supportive. There was a GoFundMe on Facebook that was really that, so helpful. I don't know what I would have done without it. Um, so it was, uh, in some ways, you know, it was a really transformative experience. And, um, you know, the, the, those sorts of things you just grow up from. It doesn't matter if you're 50 years old, you're still growing up, right? Oh, so, yeah. Um, yeah, it was, a, it was physically challenging, but I'm, 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 I'm doing really well now. I, I'm running three miles a day and doing theater and singing and doing all of my work in the audiobook world. And, um, of course, uh, supporting my family. So, um, yeah, but it's been, it's been quite a journey. Well, I'm glad it was a full recovery. <laughs> was there, I'm wondering what the doctors told you about, how likely a full recovery would be. I mean, you clearly are somebody who uses your voice pretty much constantly for work. And yeah. and I'm wondering if they were saying, well, there is a possibility, you know, there's 5%, 10% possibility that you'll never be yeah. able to speak again or or whatever it is. <laughs> I mean, was was there yeah. anything like that and and how Well, there there is. There's that so the what they did was they 
So they separated out that nerve from the blood vessel and they burned it. They, uh, it's called, lith, uh, uh, lap, what's it called? Shoot, uh, rhizotomy. And um, in burning that nerve, of course, they you run the risk of losing sensation. So I have a, a space on my, you know, like about a quarter of my tongue and a big part of my cheek and mouth I cannot feel at all. And so when I got back in the studio, I had to really work on my S's. There's a little muddiness that wasn't there before because I literally cannot feel this part of my of the of the instrument, basically. Mm. Um, so I've had to overcome that. But it's it's far better than it was before. And I'm just grateful that they had the medical technology to deal with it. I was a little frustrated that they weren't quite as forthcoming with me about what the symptoms from the surgery could be. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had to do that surgery. There wasn't really any question. I'm just really lucky that it's not that it's only a quarter of my tongue. It's not a third because I wouldn't be able to do my work. Yeah, I mean, it's funny when when you get to something like the tongue or lips or something that has to do with speech, tiniest little change can have a huge impact. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So I, but, but that, you know, just it's, it's sort of, well, it creates a challenge. And I think I felt that um, there wasn't any way for me not to deal with this particular situation. So whatever is left over from it, I get frustrated with it, but I also think, okay, remember where you were, remember right. the level of pain that you were in. Think of and, the alternative, yeah. Yeah, and this is kind of the new normal. So um, I'm just grateful to to be able to still work, honestly. Well, yeah, I'm glad it was a, a success, even if it's only yeah. 98%. I mean, that's you know, <laughs> that's uh, that's fantastic. I do remember that, and I think that it is a, a great example of what the audiobook community is like. Um, I've said it many times and I keep saying it. Uh, it's, it's really, uh, sort of amazing. Uh, I've, you know, been in different areas of voiceover and I really think that the audiobook community is, uh, the best or at least one of the best. Why do you think that that is? I'm always interested. I mean, I agree with you, but why do you think that is? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, I really don't know. Um, but, but holy cow, is it? I mean, just the the interactions that I've had with people, you know, people like you who who are so well-versed in this uh, craft uh, and like Sean and Carol Monda and just everybody else who's been here to the speakeasy who are just so willing to, to give their time to, um, you know, help people who are starting out to, uh, to give back, you know, and it's not just this podcast. It's, it's everywhere. The people that I meet and how much they're willing to do. I I think it's a great question. I I don't know why that is, but it just seems so much more like a family. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about this the other day. I wonder if it has something to do that we work so much in isolation that the work that we do is so concentrated and most of my interactions are online Mm -hmm. they're not personal i'm not walking down the hall and meeting my producers um i'm not meeting my authors and so then i wonder if just out of a natural human need to interact that you think you've got this huge pool of audiobook narrators that are all in their tiny little closets Mm -hmm. 
recording alone. And so the, the, then coming out and, and realizing, oh, there is a community here. Mm -hmm. I can communicate with people because the work is so isolating. So so. I wonder if that's not part of it. Yeah, it, it might be. I mean, voiceover work these days in, uh, in all different genres can be, uh, maybe not so much video games, but uh, in a lot of different genres, uh, corporate narration, you, it's often done in home studios. And yet those are such short projects compared to audiobooks where you're yeah. dealing with clients, uh, multiple clients frequently, as opposed to one client. And then you spend a week recording their work and then you deal with them again when you're done. Uh, so it, it could be that it, it is more isolating. I, I assume that e-learning could also sort of qualify for that, but it really kind of depends on the length of the project. Uh, so that might be part of it. Uh, I'm not really sure. It's a, it's a good question, but I, uh, I definitely feel that way. Well, and I, I also wonder if it's not just that, you know, you've got a, a, a group of people that have that are performers and and want to give something. They want to, there's a creative endeavor there. And they want to give something back, um, but there isn't much of an exchange of energy between you and, say, well, another performer. Every once in a while, I'll get a, a, a project where there are a bunch of performers, but we're not in the same room. Mm-hmm. So you don't get that dynamic that that I love about theater, which is people, which is figuring out where the people are and what can I do to sort of facilitate, how can I be other-directed? Mm-hmm. Um Whereas audiobooks are much more concentrated, much more in in, a, in an isolated environment, and so I wonder if it's that you have this really great. Pe- the, the audiobooks seem to attract people that are performers, but they're not really flashy. Mm-hmm. They're not involved in an external. Well, most of them, but not involved in an external validation of worth or ego. Because if that's what you're looking for in audiobooks, you're not going to get it. Yeah. You're just not going to get it. So, you know, you have to be somebody that's willing to sort of throw work out into the ether and not have a lot of ego stroking in return. And therefore, you get a collective of people that don't particularly need that. So they're somewhat more evolved. They're somewhat more generous, I think. Yeah, yeah, that could be. I I definitely feel it. Um, I'm very, uh, I, I consider myself very fortunate to be in this line of work at this point. And, um, and I definitely think the community is a big deal. Yeah, I do. I do too. I do. I could, I could benefit more from, uh, I tend to not be able to go to APAC or the audience or the, even if I'm nominated, I've never been to the audience. Oh, wow. Um, Usually it's because I've got too much work going on and I haven't been organized enough to take a weekend away. Uh, got <laughs> it's it. It's really terrible. <laughs> so um, I really need to, uh, I need to do sort of a, 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 a road trip and hit all of my, you know, go and have a little FaceTime with all of the people that I work with regularly. Yeah, so definitely. Wonderful. Yeah. I, I've been to APAC a couple of times now. I'll be going again this year and I think it's great. Um, and, and, Standard advice for people who go the first time is, you know, you don't go to this expecting work. And so I'm really glad that I heeded that advice. And of course, you want to meet people and you want work to come out of it eventually. And and I certainly still do hope that'll happen. But it really is nice just to get involved with other people in the industry face to face. It's a huge deal. So I highly recommend it. Yeah. If you haven't been to an APAC, you should go. 
I should get my act together and go. <laughs> well, it is one of the reasons that I love coaching because I get to meet all of these narrators and some of them are 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 experienced really experienced and some of them are newbies, but just to be able to have the conversation about audiobooks and identify what is the art form? What is it specifically that we are doing creatively that can, you know, it's not that I want everybody to sort of name or identify their process. It's just a matter of what is it that we're doing? How are we doing and how can we make it better? And it, that's difficult for me just with my personality to figure out on my own. Mm -hmm. So I do much better if I'm coaching or teaching or directing in terms of just bringing that back to my own work, um, identifying those ideas, figuring out how to communicate them. And, uh, you know, of course, it varies between students, but there's there's something really wonderful about facilitating another person's success and growth. I'm really interested in that. So that's good. I, I was going to ask you a little bit more about coaching. You touched on it earlier about, you know, uh, being a, a coach who is an actor, which makes a big difference in terms of, of how you coach. Um, what What have you found has been the most common thing that you work on? I, I'm, I'm guessing from the way you've described it so far that it's not like you work from a curriculum. It's, it's more that you interact with the person, you find out where they're coming from, and then you figure out what needs to be done. So what is it that you have found frequently needs to be done? Or what is it that you have found uh, has been most helpful to the, the students that you coach? Hmm. Um, well, I, uh, so I, I, I do feel that a curriculum becomes valuable. So what I, what I end up doing is working with people for a number of sessions, sort of figuring out what their habits are, where they are in process, you know, what their inner critic is telling them all the time. Mm -hmm. you know, they should, you know, there's an imposter syndrome. They shouldn't be doing it and all oh, that. Oh, yeah. So identifying that stuff, identifying when I'm listening, um, things that I feel like we can specifically work on. And then a lot of times those people, trans, they, they sort of uh, transfer over into a curriculum that is about genre. So we start with the classics and then we go to mystery and thriller and then we go to romance. And then we, I don't, I tend to not do nonfiction unless somebody requests it. I do lots, I do personally lots of nonfiction, but I think there are other coaches, Sean being one that, that really has a piece of it. Mm -hmm. um, what I've noticed more than anything else is I'm what I hope, because what we have to offer as actors in any aspect of this industry is ourselves, is the essence of who we are. So what I need to do is really be as focused and clear and identify what it is that I have to offer, essentially what I have to offer. So what I find is that people, almost everybody that I've worked with, no matter their experience, they were struggling a little bit with the, sort of the narrator voice, the storyteller voice, mm -hmm. and making that authentic, finding the, the the heart of the book. And this all sounds very nuanced and, and uh, crunchy granola, but finding the heart of the book, finding the author's voice, and syncing your own voice up to it so that it's, conver it's conversational 
or and and maybe it's conversational with a little layer of 18th century on it, right? Or <laughs> a layer, right. So, but but really finding your own voice, finding your own voice, that seems to be the thing that is the most. And I do it. I mean, I absolutely identify it in my own work. So I'll be doing nonfiction, and it's like, and then they wander down to the ba 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 ba, you know. And mm-hmm. it's not doesn't. It doesn't have anything to do with me. It's just a sort of pretty sounding voice. Well, that's boring as hell, to be honest with you. <laughs> right? So we want to find the, the the heart, the meat of the actor and help that actor figure out how to sync up with what the author is saying. Mm-hmm. And I would say that's that's been the case with every single person that I've worked with. It sounds a lot like uh, acting advice in general that I've heard, and uh, I would say that I've heard it more in terms of voiceover probably, but um, but the fact that um, it's you, you you have to infuse whatever the character, I mean, you have to infuse what you're doing with you, and so no matter what you're playing on stage, well, I've never been a serial killer. No, you haven't, but you have something inside of you that could go in that direction, whatever that is. And you really yeah. need to put that out there. And so hearing you say that what you have found helpful is, um, you know, getting people to um, take themselves and make, you know, some internal part of them, uh, part of it is, uh, it, it sounds like good advice. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's, it's particularly easy to get to. No, and neither yeah, do I. <laughs> yeah. But it is, it is pretty basic acting. It's what what I'm trying to offer people and and myself is a, a, a is is really pretty basic acting stuff that we forget about. For instance, you know, we're working on a character and you know, we're not doing their given circumstances. What is happening with that character? They're all the way through your book. So a lot of times you don't even get a physical description of a character in a book, right? Mm-hmm. So you've got to flesh that out with your imagination. You've got to figure out, okay, if I was this person, you know, what would I do? How would I be behaving? Figure out what their need is, what is the obstacle to their need, and and what's the action to them getting what they need. Well, that's the most basic Stanislavski, Meisner, you know, it's mm-hmm. so basic. Right. But in audiobooks, because we wear so many hats, it's very, very easy to forget that. And it doesn't take a lot of time to identify that stuff and to, you know, you you research the book and then you make some decisions about character. You identify what's said about them, what their events are. It doesn't take a tremendous amount of time, but I do think that that layer makes for a much more interesting audiobook. The The, the narrators that I really love to listen to are so deep into the book and really know their characters. You can tell that they've done the work. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm encouraging people to do. And then also on the on the other end of that, to to streamline their editing process, their inner critic, the thing that's telling them, the, I got to go back and listen to this 85 times. Yeah. Then I'm going to proof it. Then I'm going to master it. I'm like, no, 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 no. You'll never make a nickel if you do that. Yeah. So let's figure out a way to, to quiet down that inner critic and you do the work outside of the studio and then get in there and play. I like to think about it as jazz. You know, once you've got all the information, then you can just play. That's great. I've never heard that before. I like that. 
Think of it as jazz. That's good. Yeah. Um, Im- improv. Your- improv. To do whatever you want. Improvised jazz, even better. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Just, the, the the jazz that is just, you know, you're just in the flow of things. You're in yep. the flow and you're willing to take some risks. So that's what makes for when I'm listening. I don't know that I necessarily achieve that as an as a narrator, but when I'm listening to narrators that I really admire, that's what's going on. They're riffing. Yeah. They're riffing with language. They've done the character work and they're just going. So, um, yeah, I think that's probably what I'm trying to achieve more than anything else with the, with the people that I'm working with and, uh, honestly have the privilege to work with because I learn as much as I teach. Yeah, that's, uh, that's great. So when you're not teaching, when you're not narrating, what are you doing? What do you do on your uh, spare time? If you have any, (laughs) oh gosh, what do I do on my spare time? Um, I spend quite a lot of time out in nature. I try to get to see the ocean at least every other day. Oh, wow. That's great. One of the things I miss having moved to Tucson from the Bay Area is Uh, proximity to the ocean. Yeah, absolutely. Although I do like, I love New Mexico. I love high desert. Mm -hmm. I feel like the sky sort of substitutes for that big body of water. I could Mm. live out there for sure. Yeah. but uh, yeah, I try to once the once the weather is better. It's a little isolating here in the winter. There's just not that much to do. One, that's why I like to do a play in January, February, March. Yeah. <laughs> um, gets me out of the house. Um, no, in the summertime, uh, I, I or in the spring and summer and fall, I spend quite a lot of time outside. I run on the beach. I um, do lots of teaching and workshops with the theater, and um, I, you know, I have an 18-year-old daughter that lives with me, and I'm just so grateful that I've got her for this little period of time before she launches off out into the world. Right. So we spend a lot of time together, and um, yeah, I, I, I like to cook. I have lots of. I have lots of really good friends that I'm grateful for. I like to sail. Um, oh, no kidding. So, so it's it's not just being on the beach. It's that you actually get out on the water. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I like to sail. I have a kayak. So, yeah, I, I definitely, definitely try to – I try hard to keep it simple. Um, I've, you know, been a lots of – there have been a lot of times in my life where it was just hustling so hard. Mm-hmm. And – I feel like I hustle a lot in order to get audiobooks and I'm I'm always working all the time in in lots of different things but there's a baseline simplicity there that has to do with make sure you see the ocean make sure you eat well exercise you know connect of course with your children and your friends and just kind of keep it simple so that's and that's one of the joys of audiobooks is that you really can keep it simple. You're not hustling off to a big corporate office. You're mm-hmm. not, you know, you're not there. You can control your time a little. There's a flexibility there. So, yeah, yeah I'm tremendously grateful for the work. That's great. Well, what uh, I mean, you've already given us so much information here, but uh, if you had any any words of wisdom for aspiring narrators out there, what would you say is the most important thing they should keep in mind? Hmm. So I've always said that, you know, it's sort of a three, three-pronged thing. You've got type, which is the least, of course, with audiobooks, and you've got tenacity, 
and you've got talent. And the most important thing in that equation, you need talent, you need type, um, but the most important thing in that equation is tenacity. The most important thing is to stay training and keep learning and keep putting your work out there and and trust that if it is, in tr- you know, if you've gone to a couple of coaches and you've worked and you've gotten a few books and you can say, okay, I can do this, then then the real work happens, which is about getting the work and staying in it. Mm-hmm. and continuing to learn. So yeah, I think that's the biggest thing. I just like with anything in this industry, it takes a tremendous amount of drive and passion and desire to be able to make a living at it. That's, that's just the reality of it. So it is, I, I hear things from people sometimes and I, and I feel like, um, you know, I hear from some people and it sounds like they've got that drive and I hear from other people and I think, I wonder if they're still going to be doing this five years from now, because from what I'm hearing, I think it's going to be really difficult to keep to keep that going. And that that is absolutely something that I have struggled with as well. And I oh, I do. Too. Yeah, yeah. I, I certainly can't say. Well, none of us can for sure. But I certainly can't say that five years from now, I'll still be doing this. But I'm certainly trying to keep everything moving in the right direction. And uh, so I can yeah. certainly see why tenacity is uh, number one in your book. Well, and the other thing that I would say is to quiet the inner critic, to quiet that voice if in whatever way you need to do it. I do it by, you know, pounding out three miles in the woods or on the beach of running that keeps me sane. Mm-hmm. So find a way to sort of like quiet that inner critic, that mean chatter that's telling you, oh, you don't really have a piece of this. You don't know what you're doing. You're terrible. That's just noise. It gets in the way of your creative impulses. So if you can if you can quiet that in whatever way you do, uh, you know, it doesn't really matter to me how you do it. It's personal, but you know whether it's it's writing, whether it's whether it's it's exercise, whether it's play, whether it's cooking, doesn't or meditation doesn't matter. It's just get that negative noise out of your brain because it's it is totally useless mm-hmm. uh, that inner critic isn't useful you can get your criticism from elsewhere you know you don't need that negative energy so yeah i think um and of course that's coupled with tenacity because to be able to go out there and generate your own work and and sell basically the thing that you're selling is yourself so, you know, those two things are coupled, that separation from that inner critic and the drive to go get what you want. And I totally agree with you. I mean, the industry is becoming really saturated with people. Um, and, you know, my question is always like, well, how long is that going to last? It almost and, and also you might be really great on a chapter or an audition, but ultimately, audiobooks are about getting in there and getting the material out and getting it in on time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that is such a big piece of it, that that sort of consistency of work. And so that's where I think it will begin to fall apart for people is, you know, really being able to be disciplined enough to get in there, 
do the work and then generate more work. I mean, I don't know about you, but I never know what I'm doing in three months. No, I and know. I've and I've been doing this for almost 20 years. Yeah, I, it's, it's, it's an entrepreneurial thing. I, I fell victim to that earlier this year, forgetting about the fact that you need to continually be looking at what's happening in the future because I had several projects that I had assumed had a high probability of coming through and none of them did. I, I really thought the probability was high. And even if the probability was high, it was not 100%. And so mm. I just slacked off on on looking for more work and contacting people. And all of a sudden, I'm sitting there at the end of January going, I'm not doing anything. What happened? Mm. And so I, I really had to kind of reset myself and go, nope, that's that's not the way to look at this business. Um, the inner critic, I have to say, a fellow, fellow narrator, Daniela Acitelli, recently posted something about that. And I believe that she actually named her inner critic. And that made it easier to basically tell the inner critic to get lost. And I thought, what a great idea, <laughs> you know, give it an actual persona and then you can deal with it directly instead of just having this, you know, chatter in your head. So I, I haven't done it yet, but I'm going to try that. I'm going to actually sit down and think about that at some point and uh, figure out what is it that that inner critic is telling me that I need to not listen to. Then I'm going to give it a name, and then I'm going to tell it directly. Don't tell me that anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Shut the hell up. Yep. I mean, I my inner cr critic would be named Blanche, and she is a <laughs> B-I-T-C-H. She's so mean to me. She's so mean to me. So, yeah, I I work hard on quieting that. There's just no room for it. There's There's too much work to do as an actor, and certainly as a voice actor. There's so much work to do that there isn't any room for that thing that is telling you you can't do it. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm trying to manage the tech of things. I'm trying to act. I'm trying to, you know, there's so many hats that you wear yeah. that for there to be one, this one voice that's like, yeah, you don't know what you're doing. Why are you here? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I just need to be able to go, okay, you're done. Quiet, please. I'm yep. working. Yeah. Well, well, that sounds like great advice. Marguerite, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming into the speakeasy. I hope the, uh, the dirty martini was, was filthy enough for you. <laughs> oh, nothing's never filthy. <laughs> no, it's super, super pleasure to talk with you. And thank you so much for taking the time and for your interest. You are very welcome. Thank you for your time. Where can people find you if they want to look for you online? Uh, you can, I have a website. It's just Marguerite Gavin, www. And there's a U in there, M-A-R-G-U-E-R-I-T-E, Gavin. I'm on Twitter and Facebook as Marguerite Gavin. And certainly you can go to Audible and, and dance around and listen to samples. Okay. I will definitely put that in the show notes for the episode so people can find you quickly if they want to. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks again, Marguerite. Yeah. What a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. Well, that's it for tonight. Many thanks to Marguerite Gavin for coming in tonight. I really enjoyed hearing about her journey in the audiobook world, and I hope you did too. I, for one, am going to try a little harder this week to silence that inner critic. As always, you can find the audiobook speakeasy on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean, and all the apps that pull from iTunes. And you can find me at richvoiceproductions.com, where I've got some samples and links to audiobooks I've narrated, and where I'm also posting episodes of the audiobook speakeasy. If you're enjoying our speakeasy chats, please leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. 
And if you're not enjoying them, please find a podcast you do enjoy and leave them a review. Special shout out tonight to iTunes user Belly Rubber, who left a very nice five-star review on iTunes. I'm not sure who that username belongs to, but I have to imagine he or she is a dog lover. In any case, Belly Rubber, I'm so glad you're enjoying the podcast and getting some value out of the advice that my guests have offered. Now go make yourself a Manhattan and catch up on any episodes you've missed. If you think this show is educational, entertaining, or valuable simply because it gives you an excuse to sit down and enjoy a cocktail in an otherwise hectic day, I'd really appreciate it if you'd add a buck or two to the tip jar. You can make a per-episode donation by signing up at patreon.com slash audiobookspeakeasy, or you can make a one-time donation by visiting paypal.me slash audiobookspeakeasy. Any financial support is greatly appreciated as it helps me keep the lights on here in the speakeasy. Special thanks this week to Patria Burchard, who upped her patron level recently. Patria, I really appreciate the kind words that you've posted recently about the podcast, and many thanks for the continued financial support. Until we see you here in the speakeasy again, I hope you can find some time to enjoy an audiobook. Cheers! Cheers! <laughs>